Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Cross Section. This is your personal reminder that the clocks go back this Sunday, which does mean one less hour of sleep, but it means spring is arriving. And I felt it this week. I felt it. I was walking along in my wintry turtleneck and coat and long trousers and I thought, these days are coming to an end. It is too hot. I'm too sweaty, Um, which is very good news. Good news that spring is coming. Danny is with me this week. Danny, what is your favourite thing about spring? When I can leave home in the light and get home in the light and I'm not surrounded by darkness anymore. I'm hoping that spring is for real this time. I'm hoping that it's not one of those fake springs that then turns into the second winter when it all gets cold again. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to not having to wear a coat anymore. Yeah, I did get sent um, on WhatsApp this morning. Uh, someone sent a memory from five years ago on this date when it was the beast from the east. Snowy day in, in March, which was very <laughs> exciting. But yes, I hope this is a real spring. Um, and Danny, you're, you're up to exciting. Is exciting the right word? Yeah, I'll go with exciting. Exciting things this week. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Yes, it is exciting. I'm away with the leadership team and the board for the Evangelical Alliance. This is our annual, well, it's called a retreat. But to be honest, we've been working pretty hard yesterday and today um, looking at the work that the Evangelical Alliance is doing all across the UK, our different programmes and projects, um, our long-term strategy, um, our finances, our risks, all of the sorts of actually things that I do find really quite interesting. Yeah, it doesn't, aside from the fact that you're enjoying all the joys of Highly Conference Centre, it doesn't sound that much of a retreat to me, but I'm glad you're there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to introduce our guest this week. Ed Shaw is the pastor of Emmanuel City Centre in Bristol. He's the Ministry Director of Living Out and is the author of The Plausibility Problem and Purposeful Sexuality. Hi, Ed. It's good to meet you. It's good to join you uh, this morning, evening, whenever, whatever the time is. I don't know. I'm not sure. But wherever it is, it's very nice to be with you. I had my church weekend away at the weekend and Ed Drew was speaking and he, I think he was quoting um, the the plausibility problem. And he just happened to mention that you have um, a ridiculous number of godchildren. How how many? (laughs) How many is it? Yeah, Ed Drew's a good friend of mine. I have 13 godchildren. 13 which is 13 Christmases must be expensive well I basically um buying presents all the time to avoid going bankrupt um in December and actually even as you say that I'm thinking I haven't started I haven't started for the Christmas 2023 and I need to get on with it because otherwise I mean I just am in trouble both both money and time wise that's that's funny and Ed could you tell us um what it looked like for you coming to be a Christian and what God's been doing in your life since. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, the, I mean, you know, this could take the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> in a sense of, I, you know, I became a Christian quite early. Uh, so I became a Christian age five off the back of the combination of my parents witness through really tricky uh, stage of our lives when my sister died, but also um, off the back of a talk that was given at Sunday school at the church I was part of. And, yeah, you know, it, it just wonderfully came to know Jesus then, came to trust in Jesus then, and have been kept trusting in him um, ever since I was five. Um, I've had loads of questions, been through loads of things, loads of ups and downs, but um, he's kept me going and I'm still here 
what is it 40, 40 years later sorry mm. oh my goodness yeah 40 years <laughs> later oh well that's always good and encouraging to hear um and as people might work out from your bio if they don't know you already um you've been really open about your experience of same-sex attraction as a Christian and God has used your experience and wisdom in so many ways to bless the church do you I want I just wanted to ask if you ever get sick of being the guy who people bring on podcasts to ask questions about round issues of sexuality yes and today we're just going to talk about cooking instead um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, about 10 years ago, I sort of came out in a slightly alternative way in the sense of um, same-sex attracted or gay, but believe that the Bible teaches that sex is a marriage between a man and a woman. And that's quite an unusual position or place to be in, in UK culture and society today. Yeah, and I have spent a lot of the last 10 years talking about my sexuality. And it's an odd experience because a lot of people, you know, certainly in the Christian cult subculture, a lot of people get to go around talking about things they've things that they've done really well or areas of strength in their life. So, you you know, you plant 20 churches and you start talking about church planting at conferences because you're good at planting churches or, you know, whatever it is. I go around talking about an area of, of muddle in my life, which is my sexuality, mm. and um, that's a bit of an odd thing. Um, and there certainly are times when I think, oh, please, not another conference or not another podcast um, or not another article talking about my sexuality. But the thing that keeps me going is that any conversation about sexuality ends up being a conversation about Jesus. And that's mm -hmm. encouraging. That's certainly for me. I hope that's encouraging for other people too. I've asked this to a couple of other people that we've had on the podcast who have been really open about their experiences. We had Emma Scrivener on a few weeks ago. And I, I always wonder how how did you work out um, how whether to talk about something that is obviously really personal and you could you know it'd be very acceptable if you said you know this is my personal life it's not for the benefit of everyone else I'm keeping that between me and God how did you decide that it was sort of worth speaking about it in such a public way um I took some persuading <laughs> let's be honest um you know I, I can remember first sharing it with friends and family and there wasn't any intention to sort of go public and talk about it if I was quite firm that I wasn't going to um I think the things that convinced me in the end were just I think we're actually frustrate well first of all frustration that stories of people like myself which weren't being heard either in the wider culture or within um the Christian culture in the UK and also just yeah just being yeah people pointing out that what I could have most done with as a younger Christian was older Christians talking about these things and I didn't have that and if I wanted to help uh, younger generations I wanted to help other people I should yeah I should speak out about my experiences and talk about uh, the ups and downs of, uh, of my story so yeah it was the frustration and just people saying actually somebody's got to why not you that's that's really helpful to hear um and and just you, you've mentioned same-sex attracted and gay. What could you just explain a bit the distinction between the two and and why someone might use one term over the other? Yeah, I mean the whole area of identity, sexuality, gender. Every language comes with every piece of language comes with freight um, from the culture and from people's personal experience. 
Um, we've often used same-sex attracted to describe, you know, our, our sort of sexual orientation feelings. In the UK context, actually, that has had less freight because it hasn't been associated as it is in the US context with uh, attempts at changing people's sexuality, conversion therapy. And actually, the language of same-sex attraction is being used more in the UK culture now because, you know, as the trans debate uh, gets going, people who um, are biologically male have wanted some language to use to describe their experiences and what you know that's the thing so same-sex attraction is language that has some freight is used more in the secular culture here than it was in the past but does also confuse people what do you mean by that which sometimes provides an opportunity to explain what i mean other times provides so much confusion that it's just not worth using so in other contexts i will describe myself as gay certainly dis- speaking to younger people, uh, speaking outside the Christian subculture. Most people know what that means. I'll say that I'm not looking to be paired up with their friend Brian, um, but I will say I'm gay because people, you know, get get what I get what I mean by that. Although it's also worth saying that actually nowadays, younger, even younger generations, language of same-sex attraction, being gay sounds a little bit dated you know there's a whole generation that uses the language of just being queer and you know that language will make most christians sort of pass out um but again it's language that we can use sometimes to explain where we're coming from and also it's actually language that we can i think invert quite helpfully uh, as christians how do we how do we navigate the the potential for confusion and uncertainty between how people use terms of whether it's uh, orientation or attraction or identity and behavior because people mean something sometimes when they say something but they might hear other people might hear something different like how much do you feel responsible for how other people might receive what you might say and what they might understand because of that yeah i mean each each of those pieces of language are red rag to some people and you you need to and i need to watch sometimes when somebody uses a piece of language and i'm thinking i think i think i know what you so i think it's always to ask what do you mean by that Uh, why do you describe that why do you use that language i think that could be really helpful for us in conversations we're having when somebody says i'm gay you know what do you mean by that or you know why why do you find that language helpful so I think giving people an opportunity to explain or sometimes when I'm speaking I will you know I will say gay or same-sex attracted I will um, speak into what I imagine some people's concerns might be um, depending on the context I'm in Um, so ask people questions um, to stop you misinterpreting them. And if you think people are in danger of misinterpreting you, I will sometimes provide a bit more information. Um, yeah. Part of the purpose of this podcast is to help Christians um, add something different to the conversation their peers are having or, or, or to ask the question, what is Christians um how, how can we add salt and light to the conversations our peers are having? And this is already <laughs> in the first eight minutes of this podcast has been golden. So thank you. Um, I, I, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, I can think of a few Christians who will see the title of this podcast or hear the first few minutes of our conversation and think, really? Christians talking about sex and sexuality again, um, who just think that we're too obsessed <laughs> and need to talk about something different. Um, what do you say to that? Are we are we too obsessed? Um, are we too obsessed? I, I, I mean, sexuality is a really important part of being human. Sexual feelings and desires are really important parts of being human. 
Um, they are parts of being human that the Bible speaks into, the parts of being human that Jesus experienced himself. Uh, they raise big questions around uh, identity. They raise big questions about uh, what this universe is all about. Um, they provide us with opportunities to talk about Jesus, to feel God's love for us. Um, you know, at one level, sometimes the discussions have been so focused on who can have sex with who when, and that does get boring. But actually, if we're talking in, in wider terms, um, I think, you know, any conversation about sex and sexuality is the sort of conversation we'd be having because it gets us talking about the things that matter most to people and helps us think about the really big things in life. So, um, yeah, if it's a narrow focus, yeah, it can be a bit boring. But if it's a wider conversation, can be, you know, exciting and of such good, um, particularly when it comes to evangelism and discipleship. That's really useful. Um, and I, I guess I'm also thinking about people who might be coming to this podcast from a totally different place. And, and you, you touched on your experience of, of coming out to friends and family. Um, what, what would you say to the Christian who's listening to this, who's, who struggles with same-sex attraction and has never come out to anyone? Oh, um, what I'd say to them is, <laughs> well, join the club of a Christian experience of same-sex attraction. There are a lot of us. Uh, we're not often uh, heard. Uh, we're not often people just presume we don't exist, but we do. So, you know, welcome to the club. Um, decisions about whether or not to, you know, tell people about that. Really, you know, the board is in your courts. It, different people um, find different things helpful. Some people find it most. I mean, almost everybody I, I know who experiences same-sex attraction has found it helpful to talk to some people about it, uh, because carrying anything alone is a hard thing to do, and we're not meant to, um, as Christians, carry anything alone. So talking about it with friends, family, church family, uh, talking about it with God, uh, all things that really encourage. But not everybody needs to, as it were, come out and tell everybody um, or you know, be public, certainly in the sort of way that I have or other uh, Christian leaders like me have. Uh, that is something that we've done for particular reasons. It's not God's call on your life. Yeah, that's that's really um, useful. I think it was for me, it was a few years ago, um, I think we were doing a study in Hebrews and someone pointed out to me that the 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 default for the Christian life isn't to do it on your own and be fine that way. And and if you're really struggling, then ask people for help, which just it just blew my mind that actually on our own is when we're obviously gonna be a struggling mess <laughs> and we need we need people around us. So thanks for that reminder. So obviously some of the major contexts that we're having this conversation in at the moment, certainly for the you in your ministry context, is the Church of England and some of the conversations and decisions that have been happening. Um, why don't you uh, bring it up today? I know you're, you're, you're on the General Synod. Um, tell us a little bit very quickly about what's happened and your experience of that process. Um, yeah, I'm a lay member of the General Synod, um, so um, I represent the Bristol Diocese, so, you know, the area around the city, the great city, the best city <laughs> of Bristol. Um, and what's happened? Well, in February this year, um, the General Synod um, passed, well, <laughs> exactly what we did is slightly unclear still. We said to the House <laughs> of Bishops, who had come up with proposals, we said to the House of Bishops, um, we approve or we are willing for you to continue to work on some development of some prayers you brought to us that could be used uh, to um, pray for uh, same-sex couples. Um, but exactly what we were sort of sort of approving of is unclear because 
accompanying these prayers, these commended prayers, will be pastoral guidance that would in some ways provide all the details that will really help us understand exactly what these prayers are blessing, what these prayers are allowing to happen, uh, what these prayers are saying is right in God's sight and what's not right in God's sight uh, going forward. So we had a massive debate. It was an eight-hour debate in February. Um, we, as it were, gave the green light to the development of these prayers and to this pastoral guidance. But at the moment, exactly what the prayers will look like in practice, what the pastoral guidance will be, is completely up in the air. The College of Bishops of the Church of England actually meeting today, and they're supposed to be signing off the next stage of the process that will, as it were, give an indication of um, direction of travel for the pastoral guidance, which will obviously affect uh, the prayers, and then will have a knock-on effect for um, whether the Church of England can stay together in its same in the, in the, in the, in the same form that it is in today. Whether there's going to be a a messy split of people just walking away, or whether there can be some form of uh, structural differentiation, some negotiated settlements, to find a way for people to be part of the Church of England but in different parts of the Church of England that protect people's consciences, whether they're a bishop or a clergy, a man or woman, or a person in the pew. And this is something that seems, I guess, people in Christian circles will have been quite aware has been happening in the past few months. But why should people who are not part of Church of England churches, or Christians, I should say, not part of Church of England churches, care about what's going on? Well, I guess partly, and I can remember speaking to uh, a few, you know, free church pastor not long after General Synod, one of the points they were making is that, uh, you know, that it's just, it's all the media tends to report is what's happening in the Church of England. And although, you know, you might be a Christian who's never been part of a Church of England church and would never darken the doors of a Church of England church, the reality is it's the Church of England that get on the news, uh, for better or for worse. And therefore, what's reported about the Church of England is going to impact you know, what conversations you might be having, even though you're not an Anglican. Your friends don't know that you're not an Anglican and people do want to talk about what's in the news and the Church of England often makes the news in the way that other church groupings in the UK don't. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's just a reality that this uh, free church friend of mine was talking about. Um, so, you know, there's just the fact that it's in the news, the Church of England gets in the news, therefore it's going to impact your conversations and the witness of your local church. And I know that a lot of people that I speak to who aren't part of the Anglican Church do say that, you know, the Anglican Church, again, for better or for worse, does have a, what we decide has a knock-on effect in other denominations. Um, and therefore decisions the Church of England makes will um, impact uh, other denominations, other church groupings in the UK, will put pressure on them to change their doctrine and, and practice. Uh, also, you know, other denominations in the UK, other church groupings might find that, uh, they're getting refugees from the Church of England who are quite upset and bruised uh, by uh, conversations, uh, lack of pastoral care in the Church of England, um, you know, in the past, in the present and probably in the future. Um, as a, as a non-Anglican, I definitely found it um, an interesting experience trying to navigate some of what was going on at General Synod and trying to understand some of the process um, and trying to understand what is meant by authorised liturgy or prayers of blessing and what prayers can be used in what context and what are the consequences of this. Um, and, and how much does some of that matter? Um, because I know that for some people, certain things kind of cross a red line as to actually if it's an authorised liturgy, then that is 
too much of a problem. But if it is only this kind of prayer, then that's less of a problem. How do you navigate those kind of intricacies? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, really good question. I'm not quite sure, really, because sometimes, um, you know, a lot of Anglicanism's history has been has been around, you know, having prayers that mean slightly different things to slightly to different people, you know. And part of the Elizabethan settlement, um, as in Elizabeth the First, um, was you know setting out a book of common prayer that people could interpret in slightly different ways uh, to reflect, uh, you know, sometimes slightly different views, sometimes quite big, you know, difference in views around, for instance, what's happening uh, in the Lord's Supper. So, in some ways. This is just Anglicanism. This is what we do. We have prayers which people interpret in different ways. But obviously, there was back at the time of the Elizabethan settlement, there is today, there's a sort of range of different views that you can probably just about hold together and incorporate within a, you know, a shared understanding. Every so often, that just gets too big. The, the difference gets too big and people walk away. That happened back in the reigns of, you know, Elizabeth I, James I, Charles, Charles I, and on to Charles <laughs> II. Oh, I'm getting into my stride here. I'm a historian. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it could happen again today. We might just be, the Anglican Church might be just be, as it were, trying to keep too many people together. Um, and in having prayers that mean very different things to different people, that that can work to some extent, but it, there's there's a, there's boundaries that you, you, you can't cross uh, because people just can't, as it were, get over the issues of conscience that are thrown up by that. Or just, you know, public perception-wise, people just think, look, I mean, how how can that mean that to that person and that to that person? That's just, that's just not sellable, doable, plausible, uh, not just for those of us within the Church of England, but people outside the Church, and look, Church of England looking in and saying, actually, what, what do you really believe on marriage? Uh, where, where should people be having sex? Uh, what is marriage? You know, th there's been so much, particularly under the current proposals, you know, distinctions made between marriage and holy matrimony or commended and authorised prayers uh, that I think, you know, non-Christians, other Christians look on and think, what are you on? And that's a very good question for the Church of England to try and answer at the moment. What are we on? Are we helping so, anybody? So where does this leave evangelicals with? In the Church of England, and I know that not everything's resolved, and I know there's some feeling that maybe the, in July we'll we'll know more. But what what are the different avenues that evangelicals in the Church of England are looking at pursuing at the moment? Yeah, so in some ways things will become well, I think hopefully will become clear in July. Although the Church of England's ability to not be clear or ability to delay things is pretty famous. So. Um, you know, there may be clarity in July. There may be delay in July. Um, different evangelicals are going to land in different places um, because of circumstances. And so there are some churches who'll find it very easy to leave the Church of England in the sense that there's absolute clarity on the ownership of their buildings. Um, and, you know, them leaving the Church of England will mean very small changes uh, to how they're set up structurally. I'm, I find myself a member of one of those churches. Uh, there are other churches that, you know, there's total lack of clarity as to who owns the assets and the buildings and what the future of ministry would be if they left the Church of England. Can they leave the Church of England? Um, so circumstances will you know, have a massive bearing on, on who does what and when. And then also personalities will, uh, because, you know, some of, us, some of us can cope with ambiguity. Some of us can't cope with ambiguity. Um, 
some of us uh, think that institutions really matter. Some of us don't really care about institutions. Some of us, as I've just <laughs> demonstrated, really like history and can see the nuance <laughs> of history. Other people just can't. And, you know, I'm aware that I've got friends in the Church of England who are evangelicals who, who just seem to be unaware of the fact that they joined what is a mainstream denomination that has always been a real mix of people. And some people seem to be quite surprised by that. The historian in me knows that. I'm part of a mainstream denomination that has held together a lot of people with a lot of views for a very long time. And, you know, some of us will stay, some of us uh, will go. Um, it could be really messy and painful. It could, we could avoid that by actually sitting down and negotiating, particularly with the central church of England authorities, which is what I hope will happen. But I suspect what we're into is a time of a huge amount of turbulence and pain and confusion for evangelicals within the Church of England, for the wider Church of England, and actually in particular for same-sex attracted gay Christians who are part of the Church of England like me. I think what you've just touched on is the the visible visible differentiation. Sure. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? So, so this idea of, of the church staying together looking different yeah so uh, uh, anglicans are brilliant at inventing whole new phrases that say things like this we, we start talking about something like invisible differentiation as if everybody knows what we're talking about and what we're really doing is we've invented this whole new language um, that nobody uses in any other context a visible differentiation is this idea that because of fundamental changes in the church of, Anders church of england's understanding uh, of marriage and sex and how sex and marriage sort of interact because of that sort of fundamental change that many of us think the Church of England is bringing in by commending these prayers, that because of that, there's going to need to be some structural changes, that we can't all live together in the same institution in the way that we have up until now. So it would be saying the Church of England is not going to say we're split into our separate, separate denominations, but within one denomination, there needs to be new structures so that, for instance, I can get pastoral care and oversight from a bishop who mm. um, is rooting for me and supporting me in the decisions I've made. And that other people who want same-sex marriage can be looked after by a bishop who will provide pastoral care, who will root for them as they potentially embrace same-sex marriage. So you're basically saying that, you know, we need not just a, a conscience clauses, uh, but we actually need pastoral care for people within an Episcopal structure because, you know, we believe in bishops. That means that I'm looked after by somebody who is coming from the same theological and sort of pastoral perspective uh, that I am. I think that will be helpful both as you were internally in the Church of England, people really getting the pastoral care and oversight uh, that they need, the training they need in the light of what they believe. I think it'll also be really helpful for the watching world because they'll get that there's this Church of England thing and there's a part of the Church of England that thinks same-sex marriage um, is fine. There's a part of the Church of England that thinks that same-sex marriage isn't fine and that's for fundamental reasons. It's not because of homophobia. It's not uh, just because of liberalism. It's because there are two, within the Church of England now, two fundamental views of how the Bible is um, applied and understood and how that shapes uh, how we live our lives as sexual beings today. We we talk a lot on cross-section about disagreeing well, particularly, I guess, particularly with other people who call themselves Christians. Um, and I feel like you do that really well of, of even, even wanting to, for this um, visible differentiation where you want to stay in some way united with people that you have pretty fundamental the right word pretty fundamental disagreements with um 
how any any pointers for those of us who might struggle with that a bit more how, how do you manage to speak with grace in the way that you do I saw you know I watched I watched not all of the live stream of General Synod but I watched bits <laughs> and I, I saw you speak and um I think I think some of us um you know not necessarily including myself in this but some of us would just would just find it hard not to lose it and be like how how can you say these things um so how how do you yeah how do you speak with grace in this way well, let's not pretend that I always speak with grace, um, you know, at one level. So, you know, it's not it's not a natural thing that comes to me. And when I do manage to speak with grace, it's the work of the Holy Spirit um, helping me to be what I'm not naturally. Um, so it's, it's important, to, you know, important for me to admit that and for others to hear that. Um, I when I am when I do manage to speak out of yeah, when I do manage to be gracious. I notice that the particular fundamental setting of my heart is one that is trusting in God and his sovereignty and his plans and purposes. It's allowing me in some ways to, to relax in that care and so be gracious to others, knowing that it's not all down to this interaction and I need to win because everything is dependent on whether or not I win this argument or this debate at General Synod or this argument in this committee of the Church of England or this argument on this media outlet. If I'm thinking God's sovereign, God's in control, God's working out his plans and purposes, which he is, my heart isn't coming from a position of fear. And I think my my biggest reflection, just looking at my own life and looking at other people is that with people who disagree get are at their worst when people are afraid mm. afraid of what's going to happen they're afraid of the implications of the decisions going to affect they're afraid of, of of their own lives and their own positions and their own jobs and their own futures um, and fear drives us not to love other people and perfect love drives out fear and so um, if you believe that God's in control, if you believe that God's sovereign, if you believe that we're in God's hands, if you believe in God's love for you um, and that he is gained, that, that love wins, to pick up that phrase, which is what we believe as Christians, you don't need to be afraid. And therefore that and, and fear, I think, is what most governs and shapes really bad interactions and being assured of God's love for you. And uh, remembering that love will win um, in the end is what banishes fear and allows you, uh, enables you to respond um, with as much grace as you possibly can. Thanks, Ed. That's really helpful. Um, I'm going to pause our conversation briefly to do the social media plugs that I do every single week. You can um, follow everything that we're up to on Cross Section by following us at EAUK News on Twitter evangelical alliance on instagram and you can email in and join in the conversation by emailing to cross.section at eauk.org we'd love to hear how um what you thought of the conversation that we're having today um we'd love for you to add to the conversation so please get in touch um and we are in the last two weeks of our listener survey um where we want to find out a bit about who's listening and what we can do to improve the podcast in the future. So don't forget to fill that in. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Joe. So in this world of hybrid working in which we are now in, I decided to work for my local coffee shop this morning. I went in, I ordered a caramel latte, and I got to work. 
they got me thinking, what else could I get for the price of a coffee? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Joe. For £3 a month, you could become a member of the Evangelical Alliance and truly make a difference to reaching communities with the gospel and strengthening the evangelical voice in government and in policymaking. You'll receive a welcome pack on arrival, more valuable than a caramel latte, and access to our quarterly membership magazine idea on your doorstep. So to find out more, why not visit eauk.org forward slash join us. Ah, oh, brilliant. On to a slightly different, um, slightly different subject, but I guess staying in largely the same um, area. Um, research was done by the Office of National Statistics in May 2022, which found that around one in 20 adults um, are reportedly feeling lonely always or often. Um, it's been reported that in the UK, we're living in a loneliness epidemic. Research suggests that the UK's loneliness problem has only increased since COVID. Um, like I said, I did listen to bits of General, General Synod, and I heard you say the line that you wanted to distinguish between singleness and loneliness, that they were not the same thing. Um, why do you think it is that people conflate these two things? Um, what myths are we believing? I just think there's there's a lack of positive portrayals of singleness um, in particular two, in two contexts. So the media is really hard to think of, you know, a single novel or a film or a TV series or you know whatever that has positive portrayals of singleness. Um, so that would be one thing. And then also, I think within within families, um, nobody's saying to their children. Um, singleness is a good thing. Wouldn't it be great if you grew up and you lived a single life? Everybody's being fed, you know, the sort of the story that the media feds feeds people, which is, you know, you'll grow up and you'll meet somebody and, you know, you'll be completed by your other half. And that that the story we tell, um, you know, in our homes and on our screens is a story that is everybody coupling up, which is really weird because as you say, the stats, I mean, we, you know, we, you talk about the stats about loneliness, the stats about singleness are that there are more and more single people. Um, so we're telling we're telling people this story that more and more people aren't experiencing, and we need to tell stories because there are plenty of stories of people who are single and who are enjoying life to the full. And actually, people who are single who are actually less lonely than a lot of people who have paired up. And I found as a pastor that some of the most lonely people are people who are married. Nobody thinks they're lonely because they're married with you know multiple kids. How can you be lonely? Actually, you know. There's more loneliness, I often think, in marriages and families than there are about single people. Um, and I'm just going to say at this point that Danny has had some technical difficulties. So you're going to hear more of my voice and less of his, but that's okay. Me and Ed are going to carry on having our, our chat. Um, so uh, what you've just said, I feel like, speaks right to the heart of your, I think it's your first book, The Plausibility Problem. Did you have a book before that? That I should know about. No, great. <laughs> yeah, I um, so it speaks to the heart of the plausibility problem. Um, how can we tell a better story um, to society that, like you said, profoundly disagrees with what we think the good life might look like? And I guess, I guess that's complicated by the fact that as Christians, we start believing their story rather than the better story that we claim to believe. But anyway, how how can we tell a better story? 
Well, I think our churches need to be places where we talk about loneliness and we talk about loneliness and how it's experienced by single people. Because I'm not saying that, no, you know, I'm not saying that my life is loneliness for, you know, human life involved a lot of loneliness at different stages, different times, about different experiences. But how do we break free of loneliness by talking about what makes us lonely and uh, by talking about um, our experiences of loneliness? And, and I think churches should be the context in which people can talk about what they're feeling, what they're thinking. And just that very experience of talking about what you're thinking and feeling uh, takes away your own personal loneliness and brings you into community with other people and helps, as it were, them talk about what they experience and basically diminishes the loneliness problem. Um, I always like it when the solution to a problem is in itself, you know, when, when, when just the first step in solving a problem is the solution to the problem itself. And I think the first, the first um, bit of the first solution to the problem of loneliness is talking about loneliness with other people, which in and of itself helps banish loneliness. And, you know, certainly for me, one of the things that really brought loneliness into my life was experience of a same-sex attraction. And that was a very lonely place because I never talked to anybody about it. When I started talking to other people about it, I, I found that that in and of itself banished the loneliness, partly because, and I found that people responded with talking about things they found hard and that helped banish their loneliness too. And it wasn't the same thing as me, but we started talking about things we found difficult, things that made us feel lonely, and that banished the loneliness. So just talking about big things, talking about things we struggle with, talking about the fact that we all experience loneliness at times um, is the best route out of loneliness. And I can think of no context where that should happen better than local churches, than small groups, than friendship groups uh, within local churches. I know it doesn't always happen, but it should be what it is. Is is the cult? Is the cult? Is the context with God's design? Those conversations. Yeah, I, I can I can definitely echo that. Um, I moved to London with my husband. Oh, how long ago? Like two and a half. Oh, it must be coming up to three years. Anyway, pre or post COVID? Pre or post COVID? Part way through. That's the great. That's... Well, part way through is oh, which okay. I lose all track. October twenty twenty. There you go. Um, and it. Almost actually, as we were coming out of lockdowns, I realized that I was kind of lonely. It's hard to make new friends as an adult. And it, I actually ended up having conversations with a couple of um, girls at church where I turned to them at the end of service and chatting a bit about our weeks or what we were finding difficult. And I felt like I was back in primary school of sort of saying, can we be friends? That <laughs> um, actually, that was really helpful. Once you realize that the other person might be sharing some of those similar struggles, just saying out in the open, I need more friends. And I think maybe I could be your friend. You could be my friend. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and what I want to say that is that, that there's some shame around that. Yeah. Isn't there? there's, we feel there's some shame in saying, I'm lonely, or could you be my friend? When actually, um, the way to banish loneliness and to find friends is just saying that. And, you know, I, like you, I'm not, what well, actually I found, I mean, the first lockdown was horrific for me because I was all, you know, I was, I was literally <laughs> all alone. Um, and so, uh, Slight sidebar, but IVP got in contact and said, could you, we've been thinking about who could write a chapter on loneliness. And we thought of you, could you write it? So I, I was sitting here all alone, writing a chapter on loneliness for what they did, which is a slightly ironic moment. But um, I found in the second and third lockdowns, uh, my loneliness experience was banished by the fact that we were allowed to bubble. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I, uh, you know, a couple at church invited me to bubble with them. I bubbled with them. We had a fantastic time bubbling with each other. And then it ended and I was in danger of going back to some of the sort of loneliness. And actually one of the things that I've done since then is, is very similar to what you were saying. I basically went to them and said, look, 
what we did in what we did in lockdown was really good. We saw each other really regularly. There was always something in the diary. Can we do that again? And that's what I've done with that couple and actually another friend since September last year. At the beginning of each term, I go to them and say, could we get dates in the diary to see each other every couple of weeks? And they're in the they're in the diary. And that means they happen. But it took that moment of I really need you to be my friend in the same way. And that's like slight embarrassment or shame. Um, you know, but we just need to push through that. I'm glad you did. I have to. I would commend others to do as well. Um thank you. I have lost where I was going with that. Um sorry. I just felt a little pat on the back. It was lovely. Um, um so I guess that's in the context of of church and other Christians. Um with our friends or people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus, who, yeah, everything tells us that they're probably experiencing loneliness too. How do we both seek to love them in that and, you know, help them in that loneliness, but actually bring that to a conversation about Jesus? Um, I think, I mean, I think, again, this won't be universally true, but I think one of the things we forget, particularly if, I mean, if, if anybody listening like me has grown up in church communities and been part of church communities all our lives, I think we sometimes forget what we, I, I take for granted that wherever I go in the world, where I go in the UK, I'm part, I can slip into Christian communities. I can be part of a church and there's the people that we you know will know of me or, for, you know, I just forget that that's just, that's just, that's just a reality I've always lived within. And I forget that most people don't have that. And I think some of the, some of the things we need to say to ourselves is actually what we have is really precious and unique. And actually sharing that with other people is in, is a witness in and of itself. So, you know, I was talking to an unchristian friend recently about an experience of, I'm, you know, I was in Greece a couple of weeks ago doing some speaking stuff, living out. She was just amazed that I was going to get off the plane and be greeted by people I hadn't seen for a long time and going to be part, living in their home for a few days. You know, she just couldn't get that idea that as Christians, we have sisters and brothers throughout the UK, throughout the world that you can just slip into relationship with. Um, and so I think, I don't think we talk about, don't think we talk about that. I think we tend to take that for granted you know, that when my, yeah, another Christian, non-Christian friend had a, had a child, I presumed that they were going to get meals for two weeks because that's just what happens in my church. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a baby, you get two weeks of meals. It's just, we just do it and we do it without thinking. So I think part of us is just reminding ourselves that our experience is very different and we need to talk about our experience and help people just hear that difference and in some ways hear what they're missing by not being part of Christian communities. Um, so that would be that would be one big thing. And then also to saying, this is one of the beautiful things about Jesus is that Jesus means that you're never lonely. Um, you know, I can remember t- chatting recently to somebody, we were talking about the, you know, one of the downsides of Jesus can sometimes feel that you can't see mm. him. He's not physically. And I was just really struck by actually that is one of the positives about Jesus, because that means Jesus is with me wherever I am and can go with me wherever I am, because he, you know, there are places where I, you know, if Jesus, was, Jesus wouldn't be allowed into some of the, you know, I couldn't take, I couldn't take a physical Jesus with me in every circumstance, but actually I can take Jesus who is a reality, but as a spiritual reality with me everywhere, anywhere. And he's always there. And that means that there's situations like standing up and making a speech at General Synod or going into a media interview or going into a really difficult discussion with somebody that profoundly disagrees with you, um, where you can think, actually, Jesus is with me. I'm not alone. I feel lonely. I might feel as if nobody else actually gets what it's like to 
do what I'm doing. But Jesus is there. Jesus understands completely what it is to be me. He's with me in all times and all circumstances. And I don't think we reflect on that enough, that it's just brilliant to have this this person who is always who is always there with me, whose presence is a constant in my life. Yeah. Have I answered your question? Yeah. Well, the question was, I just, I just get going. Sorry. I, I, it, where we ended up was great. So thinking about people who haven't experienced what church is like, um, I have a very dear friend of mine who I always tell off because she always jokes about how um, if she came to church, she'd just you know, catch on fire straight away, which to her credit, she has, she has come along to church with me a few times and she remained unsinged. Um, but I guess part of that is there's this historical problem where churches have seemed like places for certain people who live, whose lives look a certain way. Um, and going back more specifically to sexuality, I saw on the, the Living Out website that you've got um, an audit that churches can do to work out how biblically inclusive the church is. Um, that's another fun phrase that people might not have heard before. So can you tell us a bit about biblical inclusivity um, and sort of what churches can be doing about it? Well, being inclusive is a massive preoccupation and a good preoccupation of our society. You know, how can we make sure that everybody feels part, everybody's welcome? Um, and, you know, living out, we want to sort of both, as it were, go with that and speak into that uh, that cultural moment where inclusion is seen as a really important thing, but we're wanting to define it in a biblical way and let it be shaped by Jesus. And Jesus is amazing at including people, everybody, particularly those on the margins, particularly those in minority groups in first century uh, society. But he also managed to challenge everybody and upset everybody and say things that people really didn't like. Um, and there's this sort of biblical model of inclusion, which is G a Jesus who calls everybody to follow him, but says to everybody that wants to follow him, you're all going to have to change. Mm. Um, yeah. And um, that is an interesting model of inclusion because it isn't, you know, it is in some way, it is come how you are, but you are, you are going to, you are going to need to change. You are going to need to repent. You know, the kingdom of God is near repent and believe that the good news is that it's the basic summary of Jesus's message that we have in Mark's gospel. and we just, you know, we need to do biblical inclusion Jesus' way, which is saying everybody's welcome. Everybody will be challenged and changed. Everybody will have to take up their foot cross to follow Jesus. Everybody, everybody will find that in following Jesus, they gain the whole world. Um, and oh, yeah, we, we, we found it really difficult to be like Jesus in being inclusive, but in doing that in a biblical way, in combining grace and truth i suppose that's, that's how you could that's the other way you could express the challenge jesus we you know john chapter one full of grace and truth well we're not full of grace and truth some of us are quite full of grace some of us are quite full of truth actually have been full of both is a massive challenge for us as individuals massive challenge for our churches but if we were wow people would come uh, because they flock to jesus mm. could you just give us a flavor of the the just a couple of things that the audit kind of encourages churches to look at. Yeah, I think, it, you know, some of them are specific things, you know, don't, you know, don't mention, you know, don't mention same-sex marriage as the problem in society. You know, it might be one of the things you think has gone wrong in society, but there's loads of other things that we as Christians think have gone wrong. So don't mention it in isolation. So there's some sort of really practical things like that. And then there's some much more challenging sort of cultural things. 
And one of the illustrations I use when I'm talking through the uh, audience, so as it were, selling it to people, getting them to, encouraging them to do it in their local church is I mean, just getting them to think through whether or not their church feels like the waiting room for a job interview or the waiting room for doctor's surgery. Because those are waiting rooms that feel very different. You know, waiting room, a job, a, a job interview, everybody's trying to look good as good as possible, be as smart as possible. When you say anything, you're basically wanting to intimidate other people who you see as the opposition. Uh, when it comes to a doctor's surgery, you're trying to look, to be honest, as ill as possible, as contagious as possible. Um, anything you say to them, it's just being honest about how awful you're feeling in the hope that they'll say, why don't you go and see the doctor ahead of me? Churches should feel more like the waiting room is a doctor's surgery, uh, less like the waiting room of a, a job interview. Most churches edge towards the job interview feel, people pretending to be something and they're not, when they should be the, the, con the context where you can be most honest and open about what's going on in your life, how the last week went, that you had a massive row with your husband or wife on the way to church, whatever it is. Um, there was a story in the news this week about a law that's just been passed in Uganda where it's, it's from what I understand, essentially going to be illegal and punishable to even identify as LGBT. Um, and, you know, there have been other news stories this week where it's very clear that homophobia is still a problem, not just in churches, but in the UK in general. Um, and what, what can the church, I mean, I guess, I guess that the biblically inclusive stuff is a really helpful place to start, but what, what can the church do to speak up against hate and homophobia specifically? Well, here in the UK, where our responsibility is, it were first and foremost lies, we, you know, churches, you know, listening, church leaders listening, church members listening, should be encouraging their church to do the Living Out Church audit. Go to livingout.org to find out what that is and to do it for yourself. And, you know, in our own private interactions with people, we should be calling out genuine homophobia, rational fear of people like me when we see it. And um, we should be, you know, banishing homophobia from our corporate life and from our individual lives, that irrational fear, hatred of people, just because they're different. And, you know, so many of the phobias that we're wanting to call out in society are just because people are different to us. And we need to learn to live with difference and recognize that difference is part of um, the world that God created. Um, so that's here in the UK. When it comes to interacting with uh, different countries, uh, we need to recognize that, you know, for instance, when it comes to a country, Uganda, so often the, the penal code that they have got came out of the British Empire. And so we're partly responsible for some of the legal frameworks from the past that make homosexual activity illegal. So we've got to recognize our role in shaping the culture there. We also need to be aware of the massive danger of cultural imperialism um, that we, as it were, impose what we think is good on them as we've imposed other things on them in, in human history. So it's a really complicated space in which we are not guilt-free in the impact that we have had in the past and the present on, let's you know, to take that example, Uganda society. So we need to be very humble in any pushback we give. And yet at the same time, we do want to call out homophobia and, and, and hatred. And we do want to as Christians uh, say that there are better ways of uh, interacting with difference and that I don't think there's a biblical case for making homosexual activity or, you know, somebody just saying, I'm same-sex attractor, I'm gay, illegal. 
And Sean Doherty's done a great little podcast, a great little blog post on the Living Out blog post as to why we're living out. Don't think um, LGBT experience, activity, identity uh, should be made uh, illegal. That's really helpful. I'll, I'll link that on the cross-section webpage that we update every week. Um, Ed, we've taken so much of your time and you've been so patient through various tech issues. I, I've just got one more question for you. In the, in the past, I think churches have taught um, that when it comes to, to issues of, or struggles with sexual immorality, the best response is just to ignore the fact that we have sexualities. Um, and I guess the message of purposeful sexuality, your more recent book, you say that there is a better way. Um, so I just wanted to ask what you would say to the person who's um, struggling with same-sex attraction and might just be feeling angry that God has given them those feelings that they they sort of know they shouldn't be expressing or, or what what they should even do with that. Oh, and this is this is the thing that's really helped me is just discovering that um, sexuality is not just about sex. Um, I used to think sexuality was just about sex, and God was saying to me, "I can't have sex with another man." Therefore, my sexuality was a complete waste of space, time, and um, just exploring uh, Bible teaching about sex and sexuality, and understanding that um, I have a sexuality to help me appreciate God's love for me to trail where this world is heading, which is the marriage, the union of um, Christ and the church. You know, all of that has really helped me to see and to feel that my sexuality is a gift um, from God to me that has massive spiritual benefits, um, even if I never have sex. And Purposeful Sexuality is me explaining that. Uh, and it's a book that I just really want to, everybody to read so that we, we can answer the, the, the profound question, what are our sexualities for? And so that we don't, as it were, just see our sexualities as things that can only be used in the context of a marriage of a man or woman, and so that we can see our sexualities as great spiritual resources uh, for us to draw on to. Thanks, Ed. I, um, I am sure, like many people, can often get in quite a muddle when I tried to answer these questions. And I loved purposeful sexuality, and I recommended it to so many people because it felt like it just just says really well what I want people to know and often struggle to get my tongue around myself. Um, Ed, thank you. It's been such a, a joy to chat to you today. Um, really appreciate everything you've shared with us. So thank you. It's been great to be with you. That's it for today. Um, a reminder to fill in the listener survey, which can be found in the episode description or on the cross-section webpage. And we will be back the last episode of the series next week.